You ever feel like you crossed the line? You ever wonder if you have crossed the line? Uh, you ever come toe to toe with a decision in your life that you think, if I cross that line, everything's gonna change? And it could be good or bad. Could be a situation where you come up to a decision in your life and you know there's a line there and you're thinking to yourself, if I cross that line, things for me most likely will improve. I choose to stop living in my past. I choose to stop letting my, uh, my experiences dictate who I am. I choose to stop listening to those voices that are telling me things that are just not true. I choose to go on a diet. <laughs> yeah, not bad, eh? I choose to do these things. You feel like if you cross that line, then things are gonna change. And sometimes those lines are not so good. Sometimes we make decisions that we think to ourselves, if I give in to that temptation, I may cross the line. If I make a deal with that person, shake hands on it, I'll cross the line. If I get into that kind of relationship, I'll cross the line. If I give in to this temptation, I'll cross the line. Sometimes, and we, by the way, do this on a regular basis, but sometimes we get to those lines and we know those lines are a little more, a little more distinct than the typical lines that we cross. Sometimes we get face-to-face, toe-to-toe with a line that we know if we cross it, most likely we'll never come back from it. It doesn't happen very often. Usually there are little lines we cross. Usually there are little decisions we make, good or bad, little decisions we make that lead us down the road of our lives. But as we make those decisions, sometimes we get to a really thick, distinct line. And we know that if we make the decision to cross this line, sometimes most likely, we're not sure if we'll come back. We may never be the person that we know we are or we know that we have been. So, I debated on this whole introduction because I wanted to find an illustration that would resonate with everybody at the same time. And I have to tell you from my own personal life, there are lines that I've come toe to toe with that I knew that I had to cross those lines, good or bad, I made a decision to cross that line, and, and hopefully, usually, it was for good. But they're hard decisions to make. The decisions that, that regulate the lines, the path, the route that your life takes, and a lot of times, they lead you to these big, distinct, bright lines. And you know you gotta cross it for the good, or you realize if you cross it, you'll never be who you once were. Sometimes that can happen in relationships is usually how it comes up, but a lot of times it happens in jobs, finances, personal lives, health issues. I mean, these lines represent all different parts of our lives. Today we're gonna be talking about one guy that came toe to toe with a line, and he crossed the line. And for him, there was no coming back. And it's very interesting that we land on this particular subject today. This is Daniel chapter 5. If you're using your your Bibles, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 because we have just exited Daniel 2, 3, and 4, which talk about Nebuchadnezzar and how God had reached out to Nebuchadnezzar and tried to help him understand his grace. And almost in, in a very amazingly gracious way, dragged Nebuchadnezzar across the line of positive reinforcement of positive choices and 
ended up saving Nebuchadnezzar's life. But now we get to Daniel 5. Now we're introduced to another individual who crosses a line and does not represent Nebuchadnezzar. There's a huge contrast between these two. It reminds me of, uh, I'm going to stick with my Seinfeld uh, uh, illustrations. Um, have you ever seen the one where uh, George uh, decides that he, he has two different persons and that he has two different individuals in his life? And, and uh, so his girlfriend asks uh, Elaine out to do something and, and Jerry suggested it. Do you remember this one? And, and you don't remember? Seinfeld, right? George. What's that? Relationship George, that's right. So, so he starts explaining to Jerry, like everybody should understand that. He says, there is friendship George and there is relationship George. The George you love is the friendship George, the lying George, the sneaky George. You remember all that? And, and Jerry goes, I love that George. And George goes, so do I. But then you have relationship George and relationship George is like the boyfriend, somebody that Jerry is not used to at all. And so Jerry has brought these two Georges together. And so George now has to hang out with Elaine and his girlfriend. And now George, friendship George, and now relationship George are going to collide. And he starts explaining this. He says, worlds collide. And, and Jerry says, yeah, yeah, Kramer was just explaining that. To, like he didn't know anything about it. And, and, and George said, well, then why did you do it? And I said, I, I never heard about how worlds collide. And then George says, a George divided against himself cannot stand. Do you remember that? <laughs> Great. George was afraid if he crossed that line, he'd lose friendship George. He turned, what's that? Independent George, right, not friendship George. He would lose independent George and he would turn into relationship George and nothing in George's life caused him greater fear than to lose independent George. Thank you, Beth. I should have asked you before writing down that <laughs> illustration. Whether they're small lines or large lines, we cross these lines constantly. Some of you have made major crossings in your life, even recently, leaving a job or deciding that you're going to get out of a bad relationship or making a deal with this person or that person or participating in this activity or that activity. Once crossed, we're fairly sure life will not be the same that it was before we crossed the line. Nebuchadnezzar has just lost his mind. You remember the story? Seven years of, of insanity. He turned into a beast. He, he pretty much acted like a beast. He uh, lost his mind and he acted like an animal in the field. He came toe-to-toe -to -toe with a line that God had drawn for him. And God said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent from what you're doing. You need to repent from the kind of king that you're being or this is going to happen, and it did happen. He didn't repent. He said, I am great. I am like God. And so God nails him with this losing his mind. His mind belonged to God. God just took it back. And after that, he comes to his senses. It says that he regained his senses for a moment. And in that snap moment, he's toe to toe with a line. Would he curse God who took his mind away so that he would be an animal for seven years? Or would he fall on his knees and worship? And you know what Nebuchadnezzar does? What does he do? He falls on his knees and he worships. He says there's only one great and mighty king and he and Daniel become best of buds. In fact, if you look in your Bible and if you're new to our, 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 our uh, journey that we're taking, you'll find that, that Daniel chapter four was actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. Amazing story. But my question today is what if he didn't? 
What if he didn't respond that? What if he came out of his stupor after seven years and instead of blessing God and repenting, what if he stuck his fist up at God and said, I curse you. I wonder if there would have been a line that he would have crossed that there's no coming back from. Daniel chapter five is written some years, uh, like six to eight years after Daniel chapter four. We've come through a lot of different kings. Actually, there's been three different kings from Daniel 4 to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel has, of course, aged. He's about 80 now, 80 years of age. Um, and Daniel finds himself under the fist of several rulers. They only ruled for a short amount of time. Ne Nebuchadnezzar is the newest one, and he was a very wicked king. Belshazzar who we are going to find out here in a minute. This is our topic for the day, Belshazzar. He was the king when Nebuchadnezzar was out of town. He was the next in line. The Bible introduces Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Or son of Nebuchadnezzar. But this does not mean that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. It means that he is the recipient of the power of the king. So this is not a blood transfer. This is a power transfer. There's been three kings and Belshazzar was the next son, the king's son, to rule. Recently, Nebuchadnezzar had been away and killed on the battlefield. And every time Nebuchadnezzar went away, wicked king that he was, he left Belshazzar in charge. So the Bible introduces Belshazzar as the king. And this is really his first uh, activities that we read in Daniel chapter 5 as king. In fact, tonight is celebration. It's coronation of the king. This is the, the language that we step into right at the beginning of the story. And Belshazzar is going to come toe-to-toe -to -toe with a line. And if he crosses it, he is going to be affected forever, and all of Babylon would never be the same. So look in your Bibles. Here we go. Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. That's a big feast, wouldn't you say? You ever feed a thousand people at your house? Thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Tonight, what's going to happen is Nebuchadnezzar's dream is going to come true. You remember that old that dream that we studied so many Sundays ago, where the head was gold, and the, the chest was a, a, a different kind of, and then the legs were bronze, and then, well, this is the next uh, empire that comes into play is going to happen tonight. This is major crisis night. In fact, the empire that has been rising up since Nebuchadnezzar is the empire of Persia. Now, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever known about Persia, uh, if you've ever seen the Spartans, any, seen any movies on the Spartans? Anyone seen 300? I would not recommend it. However, it is a stark illustration of the power of the Persians. This is the government that takes over Babylon. These Persians believe they are God. Well, so did Nebuchadnezzar until he met God face to face. These Persians are, are formidable. And they come against Babylon and they actually have taken a city not far from Babylon called Sippor. Uh, not Supper, but Sippor. And this, this city fell under their power and they are knocking at the doors of Babylon at this point. Now, here's an illustration of what Babylon might have looked like. This, of course, is a rendition. They, uh, the Euphrates went around 
the city. The city had incredible fortifications. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the world uh, at the time. The, the walls were some 100 feet uh, high. The, the walls actually were 56 miles long. Uh, they go around the city, so that's quite a formidable city. They're 25 feet thick um, with another wall behind them. You can see that secondary wall behind them that was about 80 feet thick. Uh, we, have ran, we have writings that say that they used to have chariot races on that second wall. This was a, a, an incredible empire that was basically indestructible. You had to go through this moat and then you had to go into the first wall where you would get nailed before you get to the second wall, which is basically impenetrable, and then you were into the city. Taking the city would have been quite an undertaking. But in this day, Babylon, though it seems impenetrable, Babylon will fall. Inside this city were supplies that would last 20 years. So they could, they could withstand a siege for up to 20 years. An amazing city. On this night, however, Belshazzar knows Sipper has just fallen. Sipper is within walking distance of Babylon. It's fallen to the greatest military of the time, the Persian army. And Belshazzar, who is watching the, the, the store for his dad, Nibonidus, is inside the city. And what is Belshazzar doing? He's having a party. Now, can somebody explain this to me? Because I can't. This would be like finding out ISIS just took Chicago and we decide we're gonna have a big potluck at my house. This is, you'd look at me and say, you have lost your mind because they're knocking on our door. Belshazzar throws a feast. And so maybe Michael and I, when we're sitting down working through this, we, we went through all of these different ideas. Why would they throw a feast on this night? Maybe it was the last hurrah. You know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? So that might be the case. However, that was unlikely um, because that's just like, you'd have to be really cocky to do that, right? And I don't sense that in Belshazzar. Maybe it was to boost morale. Maybe he was having a big party saying, you know, things aren't as bad as you think that they are. Don't worry about it. They're not that far away. I mean, they're, they're really far away. You know, maybe it was to boost morale. Maybe it was coronation. Maybe Belshazzar finds out Nibonidus has died and maybe he's using it as a coronation. Now I'm king. Let's all celebrate. Could be but he won't be king for long, or maybe powerful people are attending this party and he's trying to basically give powerful people what they expect to get. They expect to be treated well. And maybe he's just flaunting their prestige. Most likely that is the, the case. And they're indulging in their own opulence knowing that it may not last for much longer. I don't know why the case is, but I do know that they're throwing a party on the eve of their destruction. Now, let me do a little sidebar here too, because if you're interested in history, this is also interesting. Um, for hundreds of years, liberal scholars would say that this king was never king, never, uh, that Belshazzar was never king of um, Babylon because there's no record of it. However, in 1881, they found this uh, this uh, template, this, this uh, piece that is called actually the Nibonidus Cylinder. And this is uh, a telling of the history of the time of Belshazzar. And on this is written um, 
the name Belshazzar and the fact that he is identified as a Babylonian king. Again, every time Nibonidus went away, he would leave Belshazzar in charge. And so on this, um, this round cylinder, uh, we have an illustration that Belshazzar was actually called king. Now, that's pretty cool in and of, of itself, but that was in the 1800s. Do you know what they found in the 1900s? 1948, Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the Dead Sea Scrolls actually calls Belshazzar the regent in charge of Babylon. So we have many, many different kinds of proof that, that uh, Belshazzar held this power of king uh, even long before Nibonidus had died uh, because he was his regent in charge when he had actually left. And it's interesting that we've only found, scholars say we've only found maybe one to 2% of history up to this point. And yet everything we find in history constantly backs up biblical representation, biblical truth over and over and over again. All right, that's a little sidebar. Back to scripture, Daniel uh, 5 verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels, and here we go, the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Why? Why would he do this thing? When I read this, I'm thinking to myself, what is the need for this? I'm sure they had like Dixie cups lying around. Why would they go to get these spectacular items from the treasure chest in Babylon? And keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even have done this. Nebuchadnezzar kept these things away. But Belshazzar thinks to himself, hey, we're having a party. We're celebrating my greatness and our own opulence. We're, we are indestructible. Let's bring in the silver and gold that we stole from Jerusalem, from Yahweh, and let's use those to have an orgy to party with. Does that not strike you as, what does that strike you as? What are the words that come to mind? Arrogant? What is that? Interesting. Interesting. Brash? Over the top. Also keep in mind that Belshazzar was a polytheist, meaning that he believed there were many gods. And he believed that Yahweh was a god, but a god who had been conquered and a god who had been shamed. And so I think that he brings in these vessels and he brags about his greatness while using the vessels of the conquered people that, he had, that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen so many years earlier. And Nebuchadnezzar himself, even in all of his pride, would not have done this. This is a boast of human pride. Drink from the holy goblets of a conquered people who are now your slaves. And I want you to know that God feels very particular about these items because these items were set apart for a purpose. They represented God's presence among his people. Belshazzar crossed the line and he made this personal against Yahweh. Look in the next verse, verse three. When they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of, the God, in of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Who did they leave out? the one God that refused for human hands to create a representation of himself, the one God that had no images. This is the God they left out. They praised the gods of the world, the idols of this world. 
And here is where Belshazzar crossed God's line. This blows me away. Like, this is the line? Of all the things that Belshazzar likely did as king, this is the line that God says, that's enough, I've had it with you. Let's dig in. This is Belshazzar's point of no return. Look in five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. A few things catch my eye. The first one being the very first word. What's the very first word? Immediately. Immediately. God makes sure that we understand as the readers of this epic story that this guy takes God's stuff and uses it to praise the false gods of this world, to brag on them. And the next word is immediately God steps in. Immediately, Belshazzar crossed the line. One of my dad's tactics to get me broken as a child was he would say, go to your room and think about what you've done. And so I would go to my room and I would think about what I did. Now, mostly I would think about what's coming next, uh, which was likely not, not a fun moment between me and my dad. But go to your room and think about what you did. God does not do this with Belshazzar. God does not give him a moment to think about what he did. The judgment is swift and decisive and immediate. God shows up to deliver judgment and there is no more warnings. There's no time out for Belshazzar. There's no thinking about what you did and making it right. The decision that God makes here is terrifying and it's final. In the dark of this room where a massive party to the false gods is occurring, in the flickering, unlit, dark room, by the lampstand, so it's clear to all for all to see, a hand appears, not it from the Adams family, but the hand of God appears and begins writing on the wall. How would you respond? Pretty freaky. God goes to this extreme moment, this extreme length to get through to Belshazzar. Look what happens. You probably would respond like he did, verse six. Then the king's color changed. <laughs> Have you heard your color change? The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. This is where Hebrew doesn't do this story justice. When it means that his limbs gave way, I mean, knees knocking together, you got that, right? Limbs gave way is he pooped his pants. That's what happened in this circumstance. I know, I know, it's shocking. He could not, no longer control his bowels. That is how shocked Belshazzar is. So we read this and the king's color changed and yeah, it's, it's, uh, I can get through that, but his limbs gave way. Rembrandt, actually, this is a Rembrandt, paints about this, he calls it Belshazzar's feast. And Rembrandt paints this feast and you can kind of see the king's face looking at the finger writing on the wall. Immediately the king, the next verse in verse seven, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. There he goes, the go-to guys, right? They've been so helpful so far in the book of Daniel. Goes to the go-to guys. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's pretty good, eh? That's pretty good. Unless 
what's written on the wall says you got 24 hours to live. 24 hours and your kingdom's going to fall. Then you've got a really short amount of time to enjoy a whole lot of nice things. The king is screaming here. He called loudly. Somebody come in and read this garbled message that is on the wall. It's written in some sort of a cryptic, language, uh, cryptic way. We are not told how it is written on the wall. Actually, the Rembrandt that you just saw, he, Rembrandt believed it was written actually down like this. It, usually with Hebrew, you read left to right. No, right to left. Uh, English is left to right. Thank you. Um, and so he believed actually it might have been up and down. It was just a very, some sort of a cryptic writing on the wall. Either way, any way you believe it, lo- it looked, it had to be interpreted. So he calls for all of his go-to guys. They come in, they read it, they don't understand what it says. Verse eight, then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty deep. That just sounds like that, doesn't it? <laughs> all the kings, you were thinking it, you were thinking it. All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Now he's paying these guys to read this writing. They can't do it. They can't do their job. So the king gets more frustrated and more alarmed, verse nine. He was greatly alarmed and his color changed again. And his lords were perplexed because he kept changing color. Belshazzar, now you have to understand, lives in a world of superstition superstition and mysticism. Everything God spoke to you, the gods of the world, the gods of gold and silver and wood, all of these gods spoke to you through dreams. They spoke to you through mystical ways. Well, this is like the most mystical way you could get spoken to. And nobody could understand it. And so he freaks out. He doesn't know what to do next. And then the queen steps in, verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Always a good way to start. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change again. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father your king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now, the queen was likely not his wife. The queen was likely the queen of Nebuchadnezzar, his, uh, her mom, uh, his mom. She knew the stories of Daniel. She knew the history of Babylon. She knew how Daniel had pulled through Nebuchadnezzar. She appreciated what God had done in the past. She had taken note in her mind. You can see that in this verse. She tells Belshazzar what he should have already known. Belshazzar was king, he should know this, but it took the queen to come in and tell him he needs to go get Daniel. So Daniel is retrieved, brought out of retirement and brought before King Belshazzar, verse 16. But I have heard that you can, this is what Belshazzar says to Daniel, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Pretty good deal, right? Daniel's likely about 80 here. He's probably doing okay because he's had the ear of the kings all along, especially Nebuchadnezzar, probably doing okay as a slave very well. And now he can move up to third in the kingdom. Look at Daniel's response, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Let your rewards go to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king 
and make known to him the interpretation. Why does he turn down these things? You think it's because he knows what it means? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's because he knew Belshazzar and maybe he knew what a wicked king he was, what a, what a terribly wicked king Nebuchadnezzar was. Maybe he knew what he had seen in Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's proud, unchangeable heart, how God constantly, remember the tree, just whacked at it and whacked at it until it fell over. And maybe he didn't see that in Belshazzar and he's completely frustrated with the guy. Or maybe he's 80 and he's retired and he's just kind of not, not into this kind of thing anymore. Just let the moron do what he does. I'm, I'm, out, I'm out. We're not told. All we're told is that Daniel treats this king with respect, but not a whole lot of patience. Brought out of retirement is on, known only to the queen, but not, not Belshazzar. What I like about Belshazzar, or Daniel here though, is always when Daniel's on the stage, he speaks frankly. He doesn't mince words. If he's on for God, he's on for God and he's gonna say what God wants him to say. And so here we go, verse 18. O king the most high, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Where did Nebuchadnezzar's greatness come from? God. Where does his kingship come from? God. Where does his majesty come from? God. And because of the greatness that God gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before Nebuchadnezzar. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. That's not from the dead. That means lifted up to become somebody powerful. And whom he would, he humbled. Daniel begins reciting the life story of Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. He compares the life patterns of Nebuchadnezzar now to Belshazzar. Daniel reminds this proud king of the history he should have known. Nebuchadnezzar was blessed beyond what he had after he repented. Do you remember that? He wrote it himself in Daniel chapter 4. It's the last verse in Daniel 4. God gave him all of these amazing things. Because he repented, God blessed him even more than he had when he was a proud moron. God gives him even more. Belshazzar picks up what he had been given, and he uses it completely for his own benefit. He doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't acknowledge Daniel. He doesn't acknowledge the history of Babylon. He does not acknowledge anything but himself. God's actions in the past failed to grip the heart of this new Babylonian king. Daniel was retired, but he takes the opportunity to talk about God, God's greatness to anyone. And it's interesting to me that he starts not with the brokenness of Nebuchadnezzar, but with the proud heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you find that interesting? In fact, look at this in verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so much that he dealt proudly over and over and over again, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Daniel takes the time to remind Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar of the patience of God toward Nebuchadnezzar, of the constant run that God took for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Jesus shows up. Nebuchadnezzar said he looks like the son of the gods. The dream, the tree, 
and how Daniel said, your kingdom is going to fall. Uh, the, the statue that, that he built and how that all fell apart and ended up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Over and over and over again, God comes to Nebuchadnezzar to pull him toward himself. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't break and finally God takes his mind away. And then he talks about the key to the Nebuchadnezzar story. And here's the key in verse 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was like the, that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed with grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now you need to know this story right now is about 30 to 40 years old. And this is the story Daniel chooses to tell this new king. Nebuchadnezzar is likely long dead by this point. My question at this point is simply what I've been asking you all along, why? Why does Daniel feel the need to tell Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, his fall, and his repentance? Why? I believe it's because Belshazzar had been given opportunity after opportunity to recognize the greatness of God who put him in there, who gave him the breath he breathed, who made his heart to beat, and over and over again, Belshazzar chose not to acknowledge the goodness of God but instead to lift himself up in pride. And Daniel saw Belshazzar do this, and he thought to himself, that reminds me of somebody I used to know. So he tells him the story of Nebuchadnezzar because they're exactly the same. Here's the key verse. Daniel 5, verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Isn't that a painful verse to read? I read that verse and I think to myself, I think that actually might apply to me. And Craig, you have learned from the past. You have seen examples from the past. You have seen the greatness of God in the past. And when you do not humble your heart, it is proof that you continue to cross the lines that are bad choices and not the good lines, the good choices. Think about all the ways that God has blessed your life. All of the things that God has put into your life to give you happiness, joy, peace. All of the ways that he has given you reasons to get out of bed in the morning. The Bible says that, the, that God reigns on the just and the unjust. We all have these amazing experiences in our lives and they are all meant to point us to the fact that we need to give up this notion that we're in charge and recognize who really is. Belshazzar did not do this. He had the position and power of Nebuchadnezzar. He lived on the gracious blessings that God poured over him. And he never repented. And he never bowed the knee to God. In fact, he took the things that belonged to God and even used them to praise himself. Belshazzar was responsible to know from the lessons of the past and on this day, Belshazzar crossed the line. Now listen, we prefer not to believe that God makes lines for us. That is our preference. I don't want to believe that God has lines in my life that he draws, that he says, okay, don't cross this line. I'd like it if there were no lines there at all. But I know that there are lines that God draws in my life. 
and they're almost across the board, completely for my benefit or else for the benefit of somebody else. These lines are not because God has it in for me. They are lines so that he can continue to make me who he wants me to be. But there are final lines that God draws too. In scripture, you know these lines. You've seen them. Remember Achan? Achan's rebellion against Moses. He lifted himself up against Moses and God said, all right, that is it. I have been after this guy for his entire life. I've blessed him. He has a big old family here and he is rising up against Moses and I've drawn a line and Moses said, don't do it. And Achan said, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And Moses said, don't do it. I'm gonna, and he crossed the line. And God said, that's it. I've had it. And he said, I want everybody around Achan to back off. Move away from this guy. Just his family, stay close by. And the earth opened up and swallowed up him and his family. Gone. You may think to yourself, well, that's, that's, that's scary. That's Old Testament stuff, but I'm sure it never happened again. How about Eli's sons? Eli's sons were, they were priests and they would accept these sacrifices that people would bring in and they would boil them all and they would, they would hand out all of the pieces like they should. And, and typically the priests only got a certain portion for themselves. They, they were allowed to get a portion for themselves and feed themselves and their families. And so they would do that. But these guys, they would give out the cruddy portions back to the individuals or they would burn out the cruddy portions and they would take sirloin home, porterhouse. They'd take the best pieces for themselves. And then they would declare that that's good enough, everybody's good to go. And God said, that is it. I've had it with you abusing what I, the power, the position that I've given you. And immediately fire comes down from heaven and they burn up. Scary, right? Uh, surely that doesn't happen in the New Testament. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Yeah, you remember these guys? Did you bring that one up? Think about that one? These two guys, guys this married couple, uh, <laughs> Sapphira comes in and they're having a church service. Yay, they're worshiping. They're, and they're giving to the Lord. And they're having a big giving moment. And they're giving to the Lord. They sold, people were selling pieces of property and they were giving to the poor and they were giving to the church and they were watching the church grow and they were watching what God was doing. And it was an amazing time. And so the way they did in this day is they would come forward and they would put their money in the, in the plate or the, how they did it. They would, they would collect it and they would declare how much they're giving. Sapphira comes up and, and Peter says, okay, so this, this is what you want to give. And she said, we sold our property and we're giving all of it to Jesus. And she puts it in the plate. And uh, Peter said, seriously, is that, is that everything there? That's, and she goes, that is all of it. That is everything. And he said, you liar. That's not all of it. You've lied to the Holy Spirit for some weird reason. You've chosen to do this. And you remember what happened to her? <laughs> Dead. Right there in front of the church service. And then her husband comes in. He goes, I've been looking for my wife. Have you seen her? Well, uh, so Peter says, come on up here. Your wife was just here and she said that you sold a piece of property that you gave it all to the Lord. Is that right? And he said, absolutely. We gave it all to Jesus. God, God's going to bless. This, you know. You've lied too. We just took your wife out and buried her. We're going to put you right beside She's gone. He's gone. That line, it's a scary thing, you know? It's, and yet, God tells us that there is a line. I don't, I'm not sacrificing for you and giving you portions to take home, and I'm not uh, declaring that you should come up front and declare how much you're giving to the Lord, and I'm not doing those things, but I know in my life that there are lines that if I cross, there's likely points of moments that... I'm never going to be the same again. 
Hebrews 6 confuses so many theologians, but I think this is exactly what Hebrews 6 is about. For people who have tasted and seen the greatness and the goodness and the blessings of God and have chosen to deny him and cross that line, that in Hebrews 6, there's no, no point of repentance left for them. There's no coming back. Jesus himself warns us that there's coming a day of judgment. In Matthew 12, verse 36, again, we don't like to talk about this, but these are Jesus' own words. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's pretty harsh, wouldn't you say? How about this one? John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide, he is thrown away like a branch in, uh, in me. I'm sorry, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Those are not positive words. And in case you don't really understand Jesus' role to play, Jesus, we see him as redeemer and, and, and lover of our soul and gracious, sandal-wearing, beachcombing kind of Jesus, and that's fine, but you have to realize that also Jesus is our judge. In John 5 and verse 22, Jesus again speaking, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. One day God's patience will run out. It's a fact that is spoken of constantly in scripture. Revelation 20 verse 12 speaks of it. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. These, these words of judgment we don't like to hear because they are words that don't sit well in our ears or in our hearts. But every one of us knows eventually our lives will come to an end. Do you really think you're gonna live forever? I mean, we do everything we can to live forever, go to the gym, lose weight, trying to you know, eat the right thing or take lots of medicines or you know, vitamins. But ultimately, there will come a time when this life will end. And God is going to extreme lengths to tell us what the truth is, to give us his word and to give us his revelation. And the greatest revelation we have of God's love and gracious to us is Jesus Christ. God gave us his son. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave us his son to be a substitute, a propitiation for our sins. That is the greatness of God. But Jesus is also the one who came and who offers us forgiveness and offers us a way home, but tells us of a judgment to come. And that is a merciful act from our heavenly father. In fact, in Hebrews 12, 25, it says this about that subject. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Do you know who it is that warns from heaven? That's Jesus. Belshazzar assumed that God wasn't keeping score. And that was his mistake. He assumed because he was doing just fine that God wasn't keeping score. And I want you to know that you and I all have the power to cross God's final line. Look at verse 23. This is what Daniel says to Belshazzar. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone which you do not see or hear or know, <laughs> useless gods. But the God in whose hand is your breath 
and whose are all your ways, that God you have not honored. Silver and gold and wood don't give you breath, but God does. Your breath is in his hands. And just like he took the mind from Nebuchadnezzar, because it was his to begin with, he can take our lives from us at any point in time. Belshazzar believed he was in control of his own destiny. He believed he had a proud legacy. And Daniel corrected him and said, even the lungs in your breath, even, even the breath in your lungs belong to God. And God is in control of your life. And some things are true whether you want to believe them or not. Belshazzar's judgment was swift and complete. Look at verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, or this is really pronounced probably shekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Likely this, ver this, this writing on the wall was written in a weird way and it likely was something like grams, kilograms, tons. So nobody could understand what it meant. But these are all weights and measures. And so when Daniel comes in to explain it to Belshazzar, he says, basically, Belshazzar, you have been numbered. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed. How you lived your life has been weighed. And your kingdom will be divided because you are found wanting. And your kingdom will be divided and given to another. Belshazzar's life belonged to God, and he wanted it back tonight. And time ran out for him. He came toe-to-toe -to -toe with a line. And he was unwilling to humble himself before God. So, how does this work for us? We cross the line when we take anything that God has given to us and use it in an improper fashion. I don't have uh, goblets and vessels of gold from the temple. In fact, the, nobody does. Um, but Belshazzar took what belonged to God, what... what functionally was seen as his presence among people and used it for his own credit. When we take what belongs to God and use it for ourselves, when we don't give God credit for what is his, we begin crossing lines. We don't give him credit for our lives. We don't humble ourselves to hear his voice and acknowledge his authority any longer. We make God say what we want him to say. and We no longer diligently seek his commands for us. We don't want to bend to his will, so we supersede and put our own will above his. The lives of the proud are exemplified in Hebrews 6 in this verse in verse 7. The land was drunk, has drunk the rain that falls on it, produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated. That land receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and is near being cursed and its end is to be burned. When we move Jesus from the throne and put ourselves on it, that is when we cross the line. Belshazzar did this, by the way, and it was really short-lived. You want to hear the end of the story? Here it is, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. What happened was the Persians came in, they diverted the Euphrates. I don't know why nobody saw this happening, but they diverted the Euphrates, and now they could go under the water gate and they all just doo -doo 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 -doo, walked right under those massive walls. And they took the city and they killed the proud king. And mighty Babylon, 
fell into the pages of history. Does this story apply to us in any way? Is there a connection meant that we should be drawing for ourselves? Well, what do you have that belongs to God? When Jesus was crucified on the cross, something amazing happened in the temple. Do you remember what happened in the temple? The veil was rent from top to bottom. You could interpret that one of two ways. You could interpret that because everything behind the veil was holy. Nobody was meant to go behind there except one guy once a year, the high priest once a year. Nobody else was meant to go back there. It was a separation between the holy place and the common place. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was rent top to bottom. The reason that veil was rent, you could interpret by saying, now nothing is holy anymore. Everything is common. You could interpret it that way, but you would be wrong. Because the reason that God rent that temple, that veil in the temple top to bottom was not to declare that everything was common now, but to declare that everything was holy. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared before his disciples and he said, all authority has been given to me. Do you know what that means? When Jesus died on the cross, his blood gave us a pathway to get to the Father. We have every right to go into the Holy of Holies, but God didn't change to become common. We changed to become holy. So when we come to God, we come through the blood of Jesus Christ because God sees us as holy, sanctified people. You're holy people, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. You are different than you once were. That's why in the New Testament, over and over again, it says, when you come to Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Because we have been regenerated. We have been brought to life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And everything we have belongs, everything we have belongs to him. Everything that I use in my life has the potential to be a sanctified vessel used for his honor. And everything, my kids, believe it or not, your kids have the potential to be sanctified vessels to honor God. Your house, your car, your computer, everything that you own because the veil was rent, God was saying, you need to understand, I'm taking it all back. Everything has a potential to be sanctified because everything has a potential to be used for my glory because it can be sanctified in the, the death of Jesus Christ. Nothing is common anymore. All things could be used to worship and honor God first. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus made this very clear. <laughs> when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said, our minds, our hearts, our words, our actions, don't hate, don't lust, don't curse your brother or sister, don't steal, no adultery. He reiterated all of these things don't, don't steal the reputation. He reiterated most of the Ten Commandments and then a whole lot more because the message he's trying to get across is everything that you are and everything that you have can be used to glorify and worship the Lord Jesus Christ now. Romans 7 says our bodies are meant to be sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Psalm 89, verse 11, the heavens are yours. The Bible says the earth is yours and the world and all that is in it, you have founded them all. This is everything, the, the universe, the space around us, the earth, the world, everything we stand on, everything that is in it, everything belongs to him. Colossians said he made it all for himself. Colossians chapter one. And Jesus reiterates that in Matthew 28, verse 18, when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
when we cross the final lines, there will be imminent and final judgment. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was close to that line. I believe that if he had a shake in his fist in God's face, when he received his mind back, I think that God would have taken him. And that would have been the final judgment for Nebuchadnezzar. God sure chased Nebuchadnezzar. And we're not told how he chased Belshazzar, but I guarantee you because he was alive and he was breathing, God was chasing him. I believe that God is very close to each one of us today. But our pride needs to break. And the way that you know that happens is the first thing you do is you bless the God who gave you life. You declare him as the one king over the universe and over your own life. So you might be sitting here thinking, well, Craig, have I crossed that line? Are you saying that I've crossed a, I might have crossed a line from which there's no return? I can honestly answer that question 100% right now and say, absolutely not. You know why? Because you're still here. <laughs> you're still here. But there will come a day when judgment will come. And this is why God's grace is so amazing. We are still today, here today because we haven't crossed that line. And if you're still, still receiving the love of God and the blessings of God, then it is God's will that you take that love and that grace and that mercy and that joy and the peace and all that God has given you to enjoy in this world and share it with those around you. It is God's will that you become a vessel through which his grace flows. It is God's will that you use those blessings to be a blessing to others. It's God's will that you use those blessings to acknowledge God's greatness and mercy. It's God's will that you use those blessings to give you an understanding that he desperately wants a thriving relationship with you. God has chosen to still speak to us. And he's doing it again today. And this is a testament of God's sustaining grace. When do you think you'll cross that line? God, I hope you never will. <laughs> the great thing about it is, if you know Christ as your savior, when you cross that line and you see him face to face, it will not be fearful or anxious. In the book of Revelation, it says, there are those who love his appearing. That could be you. If you're confident that you know that he is your God and he is using your life in a way that he has and he wants to see fit. The question I need to ask you is, are you ready? You ready to see him? Not yet. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to the end of this, um, this very difficult story where Daniel has this opportunity to speak to another king and he gives him the message that he gave Nebuchadnezzar, hoping that Belshazzar will respond. And he doesn't. We're not told how many times you have blessed Belshazzar's life. We're not told how many times you reached out to him. We're not told much about him at all. But it's obvious that you have been gracious to him because he was still breathing. And yet he chose to use all that you had given to him in a way that abuses you and takes your grace and tramples it underfoot. And so Father, I pray that as we've heard this message today that you would speak to us in only the way that you can, that your Holy Spirit would lay the truth of this 
message on our hearts, that we would learn from this ancient king, maybe learn a warning or heed a, heed a voice that you would have for us to hear today, that we would take advantage of every moment, knowing that each breath is a gift from you. One day when we stand before you, I pray that you would be pleased with us and that we would be anxious to see you and that we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. It's been a privilege to, to preach on this this morning. I pray that I have uh, done what you've asked me to do and that the message has been clearly presented. In Jesus' name, amen.